This morning, I'd like to uh, invite you to uh, think with me in a different direction toward a new focus uh, for the fall. And um, kind of excited about it. I'm, I, I'm sure that no one here uh, would disagree with me if I said, you and I are living today, okay, between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. We're all living today between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, right? We know that. It's a fact. And um, the Bible, of course, has a lot to say about the first coming of Jesus. And we spend a lot of time thinking about the first coming of Jesus, and rightly so. And uh, when we think about uh, all that he's done uh, and so on, uh, it's kind of exciting. But um, we don't spend as much time thinking about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. And I would like to uh, just focus our thoughts on what are some of the things that are going to happen when the Lord comes back. Because when we uh, understand and are alert to those things, hope begins to build in our spirits and in our souls. And uh, we become kind of hope-filled. And I think more than ever, uh, we need to be hope-filled people today in the midst of uh, all the things that are going on in our world. So um, try to uh, look this up, and do you realize that uh, the Bible has a lot to say about the first coming, but even more so to say about the second coming. For every prophecy in the Bible about the first coming of Jesus, about Christmas, there are eight prophecies for the second coming of Jesus. So it's a real overload in terms of information, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, about the Lord's return and about his second coming than there is about his first coming. There are actually 318 references to Jesus' return just in the New Testament, okay? And so when we think about this, uh, I believe the more we understand what God wants us to understand, the more the reality of hope emerges, and uh, I think hope-filled people simply live different than people who have no hope or people who have misplaced hope. We simply live different, and it's our privilege as Christians, and it's our Father who wrote the Bible who wants us to understand what's going to happen you know, when the Lord comes back. And so I picked a verse that I thought would be a good theme verse for this series of messages, and it's in Romans chapter 15 and verse 13, and it says this, uh, may the God of hope, now just stop and think about it, what's God's name in this verse, right? He's the God of hope. He, he's the God who is the source of our hope. May the God of hope fill you. May the God of hope, God whose name is hope, right? May he be the one that fills you, right? Now, a lot of people put their hope in a lot of things. Maybe you watched the Republican debate this past week, and uh, you got the feeling like I did that people are thinking like, wow, if we just get the right candidate, everything's going to straighten out and our world's going to be a great place again, right? I mean, we put our hope in, some people put their hope in politics, and that's going to really, you know, uh, solve our problems. Other people put their hope, you know, a lot of people put their hope in money. You know, if I just have enough money, everything will be okay. 
If I can just accumulate enough, you know, then I'll be okay and everything will be fine and I'll be filled with hope because I'll have confidence about the future. You know, uh, material things, money and so forth. A lot of people, uh, you know, put their hope in um, all kinds of things. Uh, Other people. You ever put your hope in a person and been let down, you know? And God comes along and says, listen, I'm the God of hope. You want your life to be marked with hope, put Let me put hope in you. And a big part of the hope that God would instill in us has to do with the Lord's return. A lot of really good things happen when Jesus comes back. And uh, there's a lot of material. And so uh, may the God of hope fill you, right? And what happens when the God of hope fills us? Two things show up in our life. These are the two things most people want in life. Joy and peace. Right? This is what the verse says. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. What are the two things that most people want more of in their life? Joy and peace or happiness and peace. Right? Uh, And what if joy and peace are the product of hope? What if the God of hope fills us with his hope and it results in joy and peace in our emotional lives, in our hearts? As a, as a byproduct, if you will, of, of hope. Well, how do we get to the next level of hope? All of us probably have some hope in the Lord's return and so but how do we get to the next level of hope so that when we come to church, we're all filled with joy and peace, right? And uh, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. How do we get to the next level of experiencing the reality of the hope that produces the joy and the peace in our life, it comes through faith, through believing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may, our word, right, abound in hope. Remember we studied the word abound and it means it fills you to the point where you're satisfied, the abundance of God, fills your life to the point where you're satisfied and then spills over to influence the people around you through you. Uh, May hope, the reality of hope, so fill our lives that joy and peace results, right? And it shows up on our faces, right? We smile, we're at peace, we're relaxed. You know what? Uh, Some of the anxiety, you know, settles down and some of the reality of uh, our faith takes over and it results in this kind of emotional uh, legitimate joy and peace that God, uh, the God of hope, wants to uh, fill us with. And so I think there's plenty in our world to be down about, right? If you watch the news, uh, there are so many things going wrong in our world. Uh, it's kind of like in the Old Testament when what used to be right is now wrong and what used to be wrong is now right, you know, and it's gotten all so, it's gotten that confused. And we could catalog a, a whole bunch of things that are wrong in our world, but I want to suggest to you that being filled with hope and understanding what God has written to us about the second coming counterbalances uh, the temptation to be down and to lose our joy and to lose our peace because of circumstances that are going on in our world. And uh, when we combine what the Lord says about his return, Uh, with kind of the background of what the Bible says the times are going to be like right before the Lord comes back, all of a sudden we begin to understand our times and uh, we're not uh, as threatened by our times 
as we are confident that the, the God of the Bible is telling us uh, the truth. What happens uh, when Jesus comes back is a counterbalance, uh, I think, to the temptation to live without hope. Um, the Bible actually calls the return of Jesus our blessed hope, Titus 2.13. Uh, Paul writes to Titus and he talks about the blessed hope. The word blessed really can be translated happy. And so for the Christian, we have a happy hope, right, that our Lord is going to come back. And when he does, you know, uh, when people talk about things that are going wrong and talk about all the negative that's in the world, a lot of times people will say to me in the conversation, you know, the, they'll be like, well, you know, well, if all this is so wrong and this is, you know, terrible, all the things that are happening, so why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God do something? You say there's a God who cares and who loves me? And let me just tell you what happened to me and to my child and, you know, and so forth. And, and, and why doesn't God do something? And I always love to say, you know, he, he has and he will. He's, he's got a plan. And if you'd let him speak to you, he would tell you what he has done and what he will do in the future. And it's in the middle of this where we're living that he's allowing people a chance, an opportunity to embrace him and to respond to his love and to what he has already done in the past. And so uh, the blessed hope or the happy hope, uh, as I like to call it, Paul uh, writes to Timothy in um, 2 Timothy. And uh, Paul says uh, to Timothy that there's a special reward for people, all right, who love the Lord's appearing. Now, it's one thing, right, to believe that the Lord is coming back. I, I think probably, you know, all of us here would probably say, yeah, I believe the Lord's coming back someday. But it's another thing, isn't it, to love the Lord's appearing, to be so excited about the Lord's appearing, to be focused on it, to spend time on it, and to extract from Scripture what God wants to know about it is going to make us hungry and excited and longing and having a sense of expectation that turns into a love, a longing for the, for, for the Lord's return. Um, it's just, a, a, you know, um, here's what he says. Henceforth there is laid up for me, this is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who love the Lord's appearing. All who are looking forward to the Lord's appearing and all who know that, wow, some of these great promises that God has made to us are going to come to fruition in our lives in reality, you know, when the Lord comes back. Um, And there is a crown of righteousness laid up for those who love the Lord's appearing. And so there was a church, okay, in the New Testament, there was a church, and uh, this church had questions about the Lord's return. And it's so great that they had all these questions because Paul wrote two letters to answer the questions that this church had about Jesus coming back. And so we have all this great information about the Lord's coming back because of this church. And uh, it's great for us to, to have all of that. And you can, uh, you can read about this church in um, Acts when Paul started the church in Acts chapter 17. Uh, it's the church in Thessalonica. And uh, Paul and Silas went there, and they went into the synagogue, to the Jewish synagogue, 
on a Sabbath day, and they started, uh, well, let me read it to you. Um, When they had passed through, you know, a couple other towns, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jewish people. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, so for three solid weeks, all right, three Sabbath days, um, he reasoned with the Jewish people from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks, non-Jewish people. Those were the people probably Paul was talking to through the week, right? They weren't in the synagogue. Uh, And a bunch of leading women. So leading women... Greek, you know, non-Jewish people and some of the Jewish people, they all believed Paul and they started following him three weeks, okay? But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring out Paul and Silas and when they couldn't find them, they dragged out Jason and some of the brothers who was staying at Jason's house and so on and so forth and they ran Paul out of town. Three weeks he's there. He shares the gospel with them. The gospel changes everything. The people have a ton of questions, but Paul's gone now after three weeks. And so what happens, uh, word gets back to Paul. Paul goes on to Berea, the next town, and he starts a church there. He goes to the synagogue, does the same thing. And the Bible actually says the Jews in Berea were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica, right? Because they searched the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was really true, and they embraced Uh, Jesus as their Savior, but we're getting sidetracked now. Uh, In Thessalonica, right? So Paul gets run out of town, and the people still have a lot of questions, and the questions get to Paul, and so he writes to the church at Thessalonica these two letters, much of which deal with the return of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, uh, but um, have you ever thought, you know, well, you probably have, right? Which church am I going to join? Which church am I going to join? Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking about this church and you're comparing it to other churches and and so on. Which church am I going to join? I often think of myself like, you know, if I was alive during the New Testament times, which church in the Bible would I attend? Suppose I had a laptop back there a couple thousand years ago and I could work from home and I could go live any place I wanted, so I'm going to find the best church I can find and then I'm going to buy a house close to that church so that I can be in a good church. So, you know, if you study the churches, most of the letters of the New Testament that make up our New Testament are written to churches. And so, you know, the Corinthian church, I wouldn't want to be a part of that church. That church, the people were fighting with each other. They were arguing about who's the... Uh, most influential leader, there was division, there was immorality, there were people suing each other in the church. I'd be like, you know, I don't need that. I wouldn't go to that church. And the church in Galatia, right? You remember the church in Galatia? Paul goes ballistic on this church. I wouldn't go to that church either. You know what? They're arguing about the gospel. They had a group of people there. They had Jewish people and Gentile people, and they had these two racial groups of Jews and Gentiles, and they were fighting each other over the theology that the church was going to embrace. Now I'm like, oh, I wouldn't want to be in the middle of that either, you know? 
And uh, how about the church in Ephesus? You know, that church was a pretty good church, right? The church in Ephesus, we have a letter to that church. But you know what? By the time you get to the end of the Bible in Revelation, the Lord is talking to some of these churches. And you know what the Lord says about the church in Ephesus? He says, they've lost their first love. I have this against you. You started out hot, but you got cool. You started out great. You started out understanding that the gospel is a treasure from heaven and that it's been entrusted to you, the church, and that you have this great mission in the world that it's the only thing that will change eternity for people's, you know, whole eternity. And then, you know, I think what happened in Ephesus happens in a lot of churches today. They start out hot. They start out, wow, we're going to, you know, we're going to win Ridgefield for Jesus. We're going to be an influence. We're going to be a light in the darkness. We're going to take the gospel, and the gospel changes people's lives, and we've seen it, and we know it, and we're going to share it, and so forth. And then along the way, some, some good things come along, and, you know, it wouldn't it be nice if we as a church would do this, and we as a church would do that, and so we start doing all these kind of nice things, and we sort of lose the main reason why God called us out of the world to be the church, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And unless those good things lead to a presentation of the gospel or or at least done in Jesus' name so that people know why we're doing what we're doing, not just to be nice people, but to spread the good news of the gospel that will change people's eternity. And I think the church in Ephesus, I think, you know what, they just cooled off. They were doing good things. But at the end, Jesus, Jesus himself in Revelation 2 and 3, you know, addresses these seven churches. He says, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. It's kind of like in a marriage. You know, you ever, you know, you get married, right? And, wow, you're in love with this person. And it's great. And it's marvelous. And, and then, you know, kids come along and all of a sudden all the attention. And then you buy a house and all the attention. And, and then, you know, uh, you got work and careers and, and uh you know, all kinds of other stuff. And pretty soon you're like, you can live parallel lives and forget, wait a minute. That's not what this marriage was all about. It's about a love for each other. And I think this is what happened in the Ephesian church. It was a great church. But they just got sidetracked. They got, you know, the main thing wasn't the main thing anymore. And the secondary things became the main thing. And then the church sort of cooled off. Anyway. You know what? I go to the Thessalonian church. I'll tell you why. If you uh, have a Bible and you want to follow along, Thessalonians, uh, when Paul writes to this church, here's, here's what he says about it. A couple things. Uh, in the very first chapter, Paul writes to this church, and he, and he says this in verse 2. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Now, I've been to enough ministers' meetings to know that not all pastors are thankful for all their people. Okay? And here's Paul writing to this church, and he says, you know what? I thank God all the time for the people who make up this church. You know, like chapter one here is like a description of this church. Great. Chapter two is the kind of people that make up that kind of church. So in this first Thing Paul says, you know, I thank God. I, I get in prayer, and I'm so thankful for these people mentioning you in uh, my prayers. And Paul talks about that. And uh, again, um, if, if you look at um, chapter 2 and verse 13, um, Paul says this. He says, uh, we also thank God constantly for this. 
that when you people received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul's like, I'm so thankful. Now, Paul's been to all different kinds of places and started a bunch of churches and missionary journeys and all of that. He says, but this church, when they heard the word of God, the Holy Spirit allowed them to understand, I am listening to what God is saying. This isn't just somebody's ideas. This isn't just another philosopher coming through. This is the word of God. You know, and we're going to be like Bereans and we're going to, you know, sort this out and figure it out. And, and we listen to it as if it was, in fact, the word of God. In uh, chapter one and, and verse eight, again, uh, Paul writes to this church, he says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. So they heard the word of God and then they started telling everybody, right, that when they heard this, uh, verse 8, Paul says, you know, not only did the word of God sound forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere so that we don't have to say anything. Wherever we go, people talk to us about you guys and how this church is on fire and how this church is, you know, speaking to other people and the word of God is going out from this church. And, and Paul's like, we, we don't have to say anything about you people. You, your reputation." You know, precedes you. Um, and, and then he goes on, uh, verse 5, he says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. And you know what kind of people we prove to be among you for your sake. And so what kind of people make up that kind of church? And so, uh, you know, I like to tell people, you know, no marriage is any better than the two people who make it up. Isn't that right? I mean, anybody can have a better marriage, just become a better person. <laughs> better, it just means more like Jesus. So I like to also think that no church can be any better than the people that make it up. And in order to have a better church, it's really simple. You just become better people, and better just means more like Jesus. And we're all in the process of being discipled and becoming more and more like Christ, whom we've come here this morning, uh, in fact, to worship. And so Paul goes on here and he talks about this church some more. He says, uh, for other people, verse 9, for they themselves, other people, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul's like, this is a great church. These people turned away from their idols. You know what they did? This church, after they heard the gospel, they said, we're going to live a God-first life. An idol is anything that comes before God in your life, right? An idol is just anything that comes before God is your idol. And so these people turn from their idols in order to put God first. This would be a great church to be a part of, don't you think? If you could work with your laptop from home, you know, people move, right? They move for a job or they move for their kids or they move. But hardly anybody moves and says, I'm going to go find a church that I feel I can give to, give my gifts, you know, and be used by God and grow from, and then I'm going to look for a house around there. People usually move, and then they're like, well, I'm looking for a church. Like, it's an afterthought. And uh, these people said, you know, we're, we're going to get rid of the idols, and we're going to live a God-first life. And then here's the thing I wanted to get to, verse 10. We're going to serve the living and true God, and we're going to wait. We're going to wait for his son from heaven 
okay, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're going to wait for Jesus to come back. I'd like to be in this church. It's a great church. And they have this sense of expectation. They're loving the Lord's appearing. They're looking forward to the Lord coming back. They're waiting. They're hoping. And this is the church that had all these questions about the Lord's return. Now, I think we all realize that we're all unique people. Isn't that right? We're all different. None of you looks like each other. Right? We're all different. We, we're we're very different. We're all unique. We, we look different. We think different. We act different. We dress different. We like different cars. We, um, you know, have different backgrounds, different experiences, different personalities. God has given us different gifts. We have different parents. We have different political views. We could go on and on and on about all of our differences. But if we are biblical Christians, okay, we have three things in common, three markers, if you will, three non-negotiable absolutes that mark our lives. Faith, we have a common faith, a common hope, and a common love. Faith, hope, and love. We're all over the scriptures. I'm sure you've gone to a wedding, right? And somebody at the end of the wedding has read 1 Corinthians 13, 13. These three things abide. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love, Right? You've probably heard that over and over again. And so if you sift out all of our differences and ask, what holds a church together? What keeps people, you know, hugging each other and uh, depending upon one another and so forth? It's faith. We have a common faith. We have a common hope. And we have a common love. Jesus, the last thing he said to his disciples in John chapter 13, he said, you know, I'm leaving And uh, I have one new command for you, that you love one another the way that I love you. So you stop and think, you know, how has Jesus loved me sacrificially and, and, uh, you know, uh, without qualification, sins and all, he's loved me. Well, that's how he wants me to love you and you to love me and so forth. And that's what marks our church. That's what allows the world to see that we're so different, right? Faith, hope, and love. Well... Here's the thing. Um, Faith is always based on the past. The common faith that we share is based on the past because in the past, right, God spoke and created and breathed life into people, created us, right, created the human race, and God sent his son and God put his son on the cross and, and God brought his son back from life and so forth. All of that happened thousands of years ago. Our faith is based on the past. Hope is always about the future. Why would you hope for something you already have? Hope is about the future. Um, If you think about it, uh, what what would be your definition of hope? Um, I think here's a great definition of hope. Hope is desire accompanied by expectation based on the promises of God. What do you desire? Hope is desire... I'd love for everything to be right. I'd love for, you know, uh, the world to be like God wants it to be. I'd love for the prayer that I pray, you know, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Wouldn't you like that? When's that going to happen? When Jesus comes back. When Jesus comes back, he's going to do it. 
the earth is going to be like it was intended to be before sin came and made us all so ugly. Hope is about the future, right? So faith is based on the past. Hope is about the future. In fact, uh, one of my favorite verses about this subject is in 1 Peter 1.13. It says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Listen to this. Set your hope fully. Set your hope fully, completely, fully. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you and brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, when is Jesus going to be revealed? At the second coming. Set your hope fully on the grace, the undeserved favor that's going to come flooding into your life when Jesus comes back. Set your hope fully, you know, on, on what Jesus is going to do. And I don't know, Jesus talked about his return, you know, in many places. Let me just read one for you that kind of excites me. In Luke chapter 21, we read these words. These are Jesus' words. He says, um, uh, there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against people. And they'll fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive uh, among all the nations. Uh, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot and so forth. Um, And then he says this, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars And on earth, distress of nations, perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what's coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your head because your redemption draws nigh. Wow. What a day that's going to be. Have you thought about that day? Have you, you know, thought, well, I wish that day would come. What a great day that's going to be. Uh, what a great day. Hope is about the future. Um, First Thessalonians, back to uh, this kind of basic uh, teaching from Paul about the second coming. In First um, Thessalonians, uh, Paul talks about, uh, in chapter 4, he talks about the coming of Christ, and in verse um, 15, uh, here's what he says. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep or died. Now, one of the questions that this church had was, uh, some, so they thought that the Lord was going to come back during their lifetime. Okay, they had that expectation. And Paul, you know, he's only there for three weeks, didn't have probably a chance to clarify everything. So they, Paul writes back and he explains to them, he says, listen, uh, what happened was some of the people in the church started to die. And they thought, you know, wow, these people have missed out on the coming of the Lord. And we're so excited about it, we're looking forward to it. And now these people have died. Has the day of the Lord already started? You know? And so uh, Paul writes to them and he says, listen, he says, don't worry about this. People ask this sometimes. You know, I would love to be alive when the Lord comes back. Have you ever thought like that? I'd thought like that. I'd love to be here and see this when this happens. Listen, I figured it out. Don't worry about it. You will be alive. If you die before then, the dead in Christ will rise first. You're going to get a front row seat. 
the dead in Christ rise first. Those of us who are alive follow after them to meet the Lord in the air. That's what Paul is saying to these people. Don't worry about people who have died. Like, don't worry that they're going to miss out or that the day of the Lord has already passed and, you know, and that they're going to totally miss out. I, I picture this like a giant welcoming party on the part of Christians who go up to welcome the Lord to the earth. You know, come to my house. Come to where I've been living. Come straighten out my mess. Come on. You know, let's do this together. And, this, and the people who had died, they, the people who were left thought like, well, boy, these poor people, they're going to miss out on this welcoming party. And Paul says, no, the dead in Christ will rise first. And, uh, and, and so, you know, uh, th- there's a number of things like this that I hope over the next few weeks we'll be able to, um, you know, ferret out. If... Um, faith is built on the past and hope is all about the future, love is for the present. It's because we have faith in what God has already done and we have uh, the hope based on promises about what God is going to do in the future that we are free in the present to actually love people. You know, uh, there are so many things that are going to happen when Jesus comes back that you can take off your mind and off your heart that Jesus will take care of, that you're freed up to be able to actually uh, love in spite of all the things that keep us from uh, being more active in our love. And so watch how Paul, again, I'm back to First Thessalonians. I'm going to use the book of Thessalonians kind of ex- exegetically to kind of go through and then tease out uh, some of the things that uh, Paul says here. But in verse 3, of uh, his initial letter to this church, he says, um, look what he says. He says, I'm so thankful for all of you people remembering before God, our Father, your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Now, if you have faith, it translates into work. There is so much to be done. If you're a believer and you understand God's program for the world and you understand how much God so loves the world and you understand the gospel and you understand that God wants every last person on the planet you know, to join him in heaven someday and sit around his table, there's a lot of work to be done. And God has actually given us gifts and abilities and experiences so that all of us are equipped to be players in the kingdom of God. And, and, and so Paul says, you know what I like about this church? I so like this church because they understand that faith equals work. You know, James said it right in the Bible. He says, faith without works is a crock. Faith is not just intellectual assent to truth. Faith is following out the implications of that truth. Faith, uh, the gospel, changes everything. And one of the things that changes, right, is us. And it changes everything about us. And if you have faith, there is work to do. Look at our world. I sometimes think of uh, God in heaven crying over the world the way it is. And asking the church, come on, don't cool off. This is the one thing the world needs, the gospel. How are we doing? Oh, we're done. All right. Work of faith, labor of love. You know what? Love always involves sacrifice. Have you found that out? It's a labor. It's a work. 
a labor of love, but look at hope, steadfastness. One of the things that hope produces in a person's life is stability, steadfastness. Circumstances come and go, things change, people come and go, all kinds of things happen in the world and in our lives and in our families and so forth, but hope enables us to be steadfast in the midst of all the challenges that come our way. And I believe that as we look into the future, right, we're going to need steadfastness in the Christian community. We're going to need people who say, you know what, I know what I believe and I'm committed to God and I'm going to live a God-first life. And whatever I have left to live, whatever the balance of my life from now until the day I die or Jesus comes back, I'm going to live a God-first life. It's the single most important thing that I can do. And hope produces that kind of steadfastness. And so I I hope to be able to uh, tease out and bring to us uh, some of the uh, things that God promises us are going to happen when um, Jesus comes back. An awakening of hope, as we saw in our theme verse, is a product of the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual awakening, right? It's not just something that uh, we can talk about. It's something that the Holy Spirit generates uh, within us. Okay. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the Bible. I mean, it's so filled with everything we need. And uh, when we trust you and when we believe you and we open up our hearts for you to implant your word so that it, it can change us, literally. I just pray for this upcoming series and our time together as a church that, Father, as we think about hope and we think about you, the God of hope, who wants to fill us with joy and peace, in the midst of all the chaos that you know, we might find our lives in and whatever might come down in the future. I pray, Father, that you would, uh, your spirit would have freedom in our spirits to produce that kind of hope that results in joy and peace. For Jesus' sake, amen.